The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, January 5th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. By fiat, as it was created, Donald Trump's voting commission, or as it's sometimes accurately called, phony voting commission, has been disbanded. So it's, it's very hard to know to feel good about that or bad about that. Uh, he is acting pretty haphazardly and really not getting to the bottom of his charge that uh, many voters were trucked into New Hampshire. But I noted that. I noted that that was done by executive fiat. Right before the new year, he also decided to defund a large chunk of the 11 billion to 13 billion project that was going to give us a train in New York City. The Gateway Project was an Obama-era project desperately needed for the infrastructure of New York, connecting New Jersey to New York, would be one of these infrastructure projects that A, the president says he loves, but B, would pay for itself many times over. Decided to defund that. Maybe it's a salvo. And of course, and this is the one you probably read, the Trump administration has freed prosecutors to aggressively enforce federal laws against marijuana use in the states that have decriminalized marijuana. So that last one should have grabbed you, even if the first two didn't, if you are a specific type of voter. The specific type that I'm thinking of is a Green Party voter. If you cast your vote for Jill Stein in the last election, not saying you plunged our country into the despair we're experiencing now, I am saying a very logical case can be made that if all you people voted for Hillary Clinton instead, she would be president, that's A, and B, and this is the more important thing because A is a hypothetical, but B, the reasons that you gave or what guided your vote for Jill Stein was something probably along the lines of, they're not so different, Hillary's also a warmonger, how much worse can it be with Trump? And I think as someone who is guided by the kind of morality that would tell them the Green Party is a good place to put your vote, as that kind of person, and I'm talking to you, you should now say to yourself, my God, I was wrong. And not my God, I was wrong by someone else's criteria. Not my God, I was wrong because of all this button talk with uh, North Korea or even the rollbacks of the EPA. I don't see how you could be Green Party and think that Trump's doing a good job or an appreciably equal job as what Hillary Clinton would have done with the environment. But if you were a Green Party voter in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Michigan, and if all of those Green Party voters instead voted for Hillary, in fact, a hypothetical, I'm sure a bunch of them would never vote for Hillary, and Hillary wasn't even their second choice. But if they did, Hillary Clinton would now be president. So I I think the marijuana thing probably grabs you. If not, think about the war thing. Mika Zenko in Foreign Policy has pointed out that Donald Trump has bombed every country that former President Barack Obama bombed. He took eight months to do it, and we're talking about eight years of the Obama presidency. In fact, just to take one country, Somalia, through the end of the year, Donald Trump has authorized more airstrikes in Somalia than George Bush and Obama did since 2007. More bombing of Somalia under the Trump administration than the last two two two-term administrations combined. And you're a Green Party voter, and you think there's no difference between him and Hillary. Look, I am singling you out, right? I'm not lambasting the libertarians. And in a way, that's to your credit. I think your politics were probably closer to Hillary's. I think the libertarians might like some of the tax stuff that President Trump is doing. So in a way, I think 
that your own definition of morality makes you more susceptible to my critique. But there my critique is, you screwed up, you screwed us. I could say as a rhetorical flourish, there's a special place in hell for you, you Green Party voter, you person who was uh, self-deceived in the 2016 election. But I don't have to say it because I'm pretty sure that you know that that place in hell is the very hell we're living through right now. So thanks. On the show today, I spiel about, well, it's an O. Henry type tale about a coat, a coat that quit on me. You'll want to stay for that. But first, the NFL playoffs begin this weekend. Who's not thrilled by the prospects of a slightly average Buffalo team going into Jacksonville, playing the Jags? You know, they had a, they had a parade for the Cleveland Browns today. They went 0-16. But before I talk about those brutish men of the gridiron or the savants of the clipboard, let's mention a woman, Jen Welter, a lady She was briefly on the staff of the Arizona Cardinals. She was a trailblazer, and I should note that the Cardinals are not going to the playoffs this year. But they did, the year Jen Welter was on their coaching staff. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. President Teddy Roosevelt once said in defense of football, I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. And in America, football is the manliest of sports. Well, it was up until 2015 when Jen Welter, should I say Dr. Jen Welter, broke in with the Arizona Cardinals as a linebackers coach during the preseason. Her new book is called Play Big, Lessons in Being Limitless from the First Woman to Coach in the NFL. Hello, Jen. How are you? Hello. It's so good to join you. And I and I love that quote, actually. Yeah. Well, he, he had to say the second part of that quote, by the way, because everyone's getting killed playing football was, I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal so long as it is not fatal we've come (laughs) we've come some ways since then i think 
Yes, yes, we have. You know, and I love the sport of football because I remember even when I was first playing, they would tell me that football was the final frontier for women in sports. Yeah. And I just used to love that because I'm like, hmm, I love a challenge. Let's see what we can't do in that final frontier. So in high school, you were dissuaded from playing football, but you, uh, for, for pretty good reasons, which is the coach tried to convince you that the fragile, once you beat a man on the field, the fragile male ego would dictate that he'd take a cheap shot at you. But so when did you really start playing? I didn't get to start playing football until I was 22 years old. I played collegiate rugby at Boston College and, you know, it was like this awakening because I had loved football. I played soccer in high school and then I discovered rugby and I was like, wow, what is this wonderful game? Because, you know, I was in Florida, so it was more of an up north kind of sport and played it for all four years and then When I didn't make the U.S. national team, I thought, okay, I guess this is the time when you hang up your cleats and your dreams of becoming a professional athlete until, lo and behold, I got my first football tryout. So how'd you make your way to football? Well, I was playing in a flag football league at the time, and the general manager of my first team, which was the Mass Mutiny, called and asked if there were any girls who were playing flag that they thought could play tackle, and seeing as how I was an experienced tackler, they were given one name. And I went to an open tryout, and literally the rest is history. You tell in the book a story of one of the teams you were on. There are just a couple of stories that popped to mind. One is that you're paid $12 for the season. Mm-hmm. And the other is, what is the anecdote about manager of a terrible hotel shooing you away from the pool area because you guys <laughs> were scaring the hookers away? Yes, yes. And that is, you know, that is the truth of it. I tell people all the time, like, football is this wonderful sport that people have this, this vision of what it's like to be a professional. And when we got the check for $12, that was actually the first check I ever made for playing women's pro football. And it was my fourth season, my first season having won a Super Bowl. We went 12-0. and And at the end, we got a ring and a check for $12 because technically it was profit sharing and, and there were no profits. And though the amount was low, For me, that check is still the most valuable check that I've ever gotten in my life because it was the difference between playing for zero and getting paid to play. And I kept it as a reminder for what we were all playing for. The actualization, right? So you talked about this lovely hotel in California that we were at. So we get out to California and this is a high class trip for us because we actually flew. It was a little too, too far away to bus, which many times we did. And we get to California and we check into her, our hotel and it was just not good from the jump. You know, we open the door and the greeting of this smell that should not exist anywhere on this planet, much less into a brand new hotel room that you're supposed to be checking into, was just overwhelming. We just kind of like slowly backed out and went over to the pool and Apparently, every other room was pretty much on par because before we knew it, we had a whole football team collected around the pool. And we're just going to sit out and absorb the sunshine until our peace is crashed by this this guy who's working in the front desk and he's yelling and it's really not audible. And he's chasing us away from the pool. And we just we don't understand what could possibly be going on 
until we found out that that's where the prostitutes typically picked up their johns. Yeah. And apparently a women's <laughs> football team is a bit intimidating and bad for business. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can imagine. You must have felt bad. <laughs> so how did you come to the attention of Bruce Arians or the, or the Arizona Cardinals? See, I broke into men's professional football in probably the most painful way possible in that I actually played in men's professional football for a season <laughs> yeah. with the Texas Revolution. And so that's how I broke into the world of men's professional football. I played for the first season and then the next season I was hired to coach. And when I'm coaching this team, this wonderful thing happens called progress. And Sarah Thomas was hired as the first full-time female ref in NFL history. And in response to that, a reporter asked Bruce Arians if he could ever see a female coaching in the NFL. And Bruce Arians said, the second a woman can prove that she can make these guys better, she'll be hired. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I heard it and... um, I had a long day on my hand one day after practice because arena football, you practice very early because all the guys have to go to their other jobs after practice. And I started wondering after a conversation with my head coach who said, well, you should call Bruce Arians. I started wondering if maybe I could call Bruce Arians and the Arizona Cardinals. So on that day, I was not an assistant coach. I was an assistant to the head coach. And I called the Arizona Cardinals on behalf of myself, as if I wasn't myself. And I worked my way to Bruce's assistant, who said, you know, he thought it was a call that Coach Arians would really want to take. But they were a little busy with that whole NFL thing they do called the NFL draft. You know, I can't imagine why it wouldn't be the best time. It was like two days before the draft. And he said, but, you know, I'll take your head coach's number. And I think Bruce would would love to call him. Well, I thought I had gotten blown off, but I was really proud of myself that I had the guts to call the Cardinals that day. And then about two weeks later, I walk into practice and my head coach is elated. He is like larger than life. And this was a big man already. for mm-hmm. So for him to be that excited, it was pretty intense. And he said, you will never guess who I talked to yesterday. And he said, it was Bruce Arians. And he said, tell me about this girl. And, um, you know, it it ended up that from that conversation that he had with my head coach, Coach Wyman at the time, that he invited me out to OTAs. And then Bruce and I hit it off and he made this happen. He it wasn't like I banged down the door of all 32 teams in the NFL. It was a connection between me and Bruce. Mm -hmm. And I think that the man that he is. Um, and the character that he displayed in in making that that move changed the entire NFL. And um, I, I'm so thankful for him and everyone at the Arizona Cardinals because, as I say, we uh, we did the impossible and we did it well and uh, created an opportunity and an opening where previously there was not one. Okay, so there you are. They bring you in. Did you know it would be linebacker coach? Is that what you were coaching with the men's team? Yes, I played linebacker the majority of my career, though I played outside more than inside. But when Bruce brought me in, he really thought that the match between who I was coaching with, like who would be the coach that I'd be with, was important. And so he chose to have me work with Larry Foote. And Larry Foote was, you know, one of the best linebackers in the game for a long time. He had played with Bruce both in Pittsburgh and then in Arizona. And when Foote had gotten injured, 
Bruce just saw him as like having so much potential that he wanted to keep him and he made him a coach, which which doesn't often happen, that you take a great player and transition him right to your staff. And he just thought that Foote and I would be great together for the linebackers. And so he matched us up and I, I think he was definitely right because Foote was an amazing person to work with and coach to learn from the season that you coach and that was 2015 right mm-hmm. they go 13 and 3 that season they have a really good season and they had a really good defense and they haven't been as good on defense or the other aspects of the game since then i'm not saying cause and effect but <laughs> what do you think you know, I, I wish I could take credit for um, for the amazing synergy that we had that year. Mm. I, I won't say that it wasn't a great thing for the team. But I think one thing that definitely did bring the team together was having that element and that swagger of literally changing the game. You know, I, I would give so much love and respect to everybody that I was with in Arizona because it was a source of pride for them. Those guys were proud. They were aware that this was history and they were so excited to be a part of it that when you have something that special that a team gets an opportunity to bond around, you can't help but know that that's going to carry into how they play on the field as well. And so if that was a swag factor, then I think maybe we could take it. Beyond that, you know, the quality of the players and coaches on that team is definitely still there, although they have had quite a bit of injuries this season, which has just been been devastating for them. I mean, you, you can't replace the players that they've lost this year. Was the goal to actually one day get a woman on full-time staff of the NFL, coaching a position, coordinating Uh, being the head coach. I mean, is that the goal or is the goal more to show that given an opportunity, a woman can do it in any field? Because then I'll bracket this by saying, it seems like if the first thing I, I articulated is the goal, it's really, really hard only because of you know, there are a million boys playing high school football and there's something like 2,000 girls. So just in terms of the pool of people who are going to have experience throughout their lives, you know, it's like 500 to one would be the ratio from boys to girls. Sure. And yet girls are playing at younger and younger ages now, which gives them an opportunity to, you know, as I say, be better than I was, right? I didn't get to play until I was 22 years old. So these girls that are coming up with a love of football and the possibility that they could be a football coach have a much more beautiful, wider spectrum than I did, right? Because that was something I never even dreamt that I would do. I didn't even think it was a possibility because I couldn't look at a sidelines and say, I want to be her when I grow up. And yet the beauty is that now any girl who wants to have that dream can have it. So I think it's both. I think the goal is that it can be done in football and it is being done. Catherine Smith was hired by the Buffalo Bills and Rex Ryan for 2016. She was um, assistant special teams quality control coordinator, um, coach, sorry. And then Katie Sowers is actually out in San Francisco now. And to me, that's an amazing thing to see because Katie is a former teammate of mine. We played together on Team USA and we played against each other for years when she played for Kansas City and I played for Dallas. So to see Katie out there with the 49ers, it's like the door was opened. And that was always my goal was to be the first and not the last. 
right? So you're setting a standard that this is possible. And now other people literally and figuratively have the opportunity to take the ball and run with it. And so now you're coaching uh, the Australian national team in international football. Uh, is that a full-time job? What else are you up to? Um, no, it wasn't. And that, uh, you know, it was something that we did out of passion. We did a lot of that remotely from here in the States because the women's game, especially internationally, one of the challenges that they have is, is the resources to develop the game. So that was something that me, Coach Stone and Coach Konecki really wanted to do to help grow the game. But I have founded a minimum 12 city tour, national tour of football camps for girls called Gridiron Girls. And I do that in partnership with the NFL Alumni National. And I have a program I founded called A Day in the Life, where we bring women onto the football field to get them into the game, to teach them the game. I also have another project called Camp on the Corner, and it's sports as an alternative to violence and a way to show kids that they can truly turn a corner in their life at any time. My book came out, obviously, October 3rd, which I appreciate you guys supporting me. And then I speak all over the country and sometimes internationally. Dr. Jen Welter became the first woman to be on the coaching staff of an NFL team. Thanks a lot, Jen. You got it. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. In fact, it's a fable. In fact, it's not a fable. It's an anti-fable. So technology, we always want technology to innovate and to do more and to deliver services that we could scarcely have dreamed about five years ago and now just demand as derogore today. And it does. And sometimes when it does, it becomes so powerful, we don't know what to do with it. I think you know the technology I'm talking about. Coats. Time was coats could just keep you warm. But now, they can keep you very, very warm. And a year and a half ago, for the first time, I bought one of these very warm coats. And it really should have come with a warning. Because when it was very, very cold outside, it was an excellent coat. But, but for one flaw, which I'll get to in a second. However, when it was cold, or even very cold, it was almost too warm a coat. I mean, when you're outside in the cold, that's fine. But then you'd get to areas that were slightly less cold than the outside, like uh, an unheated waiting room or most subway platforms. And when you were wearing this cutting-edge technology coat in these places that were less than very, very cold, you were a little too warm. And the coats would sell themselves by saying, here's the degree that it would stand up to. So this could be your coat on an iceberg. And this next slightly warmer coat, that could be your Antarctica coat. And I think I probably bought the uh, cold recesses of outer space coat because this was an extremely warm coat. But I think they should probably market it with the swelter levels. Like if you buy the outer space coat, you will sweat like a dog on a subway platform. Now, I did say the coat had one flaw, and keeping me warm was not the flaw. Here was the flaw. Little tiny feathers would attach themselves to me whenever I wore the coat. Many, many little feathers. So when you think about it, it was less of a coat and more like a warming radioactive isotope with a half-life. Because the coat would shed and give something of itself. So compliments on your sacrifice, and yet... If you do the projections out into the future, by the year, say, 2073, this wouldn't be a coat at all. I'd have used up all the feathers. And of course, whenever I got to a situation that required or at least rewarded me for not being befeathered, it was slightly embarrassing. Now, I got to say, 
given all the pluses and all the minuses, I still thought the coat worked. I mean, Perhaps I was awed by the fact that it was the warmest coat I ever had. And I do come from a long line of people who define things as working uh, a little generously. Like uh, my dad's car worked just as long as you warmed it up and stuck that thing in the carburetor. And when you took a left turn, you didn't worry too much if the window fell down. That we defined as working. To a lot of people, like my girlfriend, Michelle, that's not working. <laughs> the coat didn't work. Plus, I did get the coat in the Burlington Coat Factory. And I, I mean, it's a factory for coats. How could you go wrong? But apparently, you can. So I've been warned off the Burlington Coat Factory. And she, she took issue with the fact that I would show up to social engagements looking, you know, like half man, half foul. I likened it to you have a delicious meal, some delicious soup, and maybe your risk is you get a little splatter of soup on your tie. I think she looked at the coat more like you get a puppy, but he's incontinent, and that puppy leaves a little bit of pee behind. She thought it was less a situation to deal with and more a non-working coat slash car slash puppy. So what happens? Michelle gets me a good coat, a new coat, a lovely coat. All the feathers stay inside. So what do I do with the old coat? Well, I got to donate it. It still works as a coat. Now, here's my thinking, and here's what I did today. I wanted to donate this coat directly to a homeless person who needed a coat. There are three reasons for this. Reason one is, if I went to the Salvation Army and gave it away, or if I went to a St. Vincent de Paul uh, repository, don't want to say dumpster, I think I'd be kind of breaking the pact that one has with those charitable organizations. Because like I said, the coat did leave the wearer be feathered. And I think that what Salvation Army does is they don't donate all their stuff directly to people who need it. They sell their stuff and then they use the money and that's efficient. But I'd hate to go in the store, see this coat. You wouldn't know that it would leave you feathered, wear the coat out of the store, and then it has some feathers in it. I'd feel like the Salvation Army, you know, screwed me over. I wouldn't want to give this coat to someone who didn't know what it did with the feathers. The coat should come with a warning. All right, so reason one was I didn't want to just foist this coat upon an unsuspecting coat wearer who would wind up looking all bird-like. Secondly, I like the good feeling. I like the good feeling of giving it to a person directly. And the third is I want to show my kids charitable giving. So I was taking the coat. I took it out with me with Emmett as I was dropping him off at his activity today, uh, which was a cooking class. He didn't go to school today. So there are three reasons. One is maybe thinking about other people, but mostly it's about myself and the good feeling that I give myself and the good feeling I give myself when I instruct my kids about charity. All right, here's the problem. Today in New York, it's 20-something degrees. It's been in the teens. And they've rounded all the homeless people up in a nice way, and they put them in shelters, which is to say all the homeless people I encountered on the way to the subway, on the subway, on the way out of the subway, they had coats. If you were out today, you had a really warm coat. So I was looking for someone to donate this to, and I didn't find the right guy. So I thought maybe I had to recalibrate either, you know, scrawling a message on the coat about its uh, shortcomings or waiting for a less cold day to give this very worn coat to someone. So now I'll tell you what happened with the coat. But first, I want to pause and tell another story, maybe one you've heard. You might find this sort of story uh, in a sermon or a religious text. I've seen many versions of it. So it goes like this. Uh, It's a beach and hundreds, thousands of tiny sea turtles just hatched 
on the beach and they're struggling to get back to the water. I've also heard a version with starfish. And there's a little boy and some of the starfish can't move and the sea turtles aren't making it. So the little boy is going and he's throwing some back into the sea so they may live. And an older man comes upon the little boy doing this and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm throwing these sea turtles or these starfish back into the sea and, and that way they can live. And the man says, but don't you see, don't you see how many thousands there are? You'll never get to them. And even if you get to them tonight, you know, this happens regularly. There is no way you can make an impact on the vast number of sea turtles that have washed up on the shore. And the little boy picks one up and says, yes, but I can help this one. And it casts it back into the sea. And this is supposed to be inspirational, that the task may seem daunting, but if you could help just one, you are indeed making a difference. Okay. I don't know when it occurred to me. It might have occurred to me on the way to drop my son off at his activity, his cooking class, actually, when we saw, and he said, Dad, Dad, there's someone, there's a homeless guy. But this was like a professional guy with a sign. He already had a pretty nice coat. And like, he was homeless, maybe. I think this was more his vocation. I think he had maybe other options. Okay, maybe I've made this story up in my head. But he didn't seem like desperately in need of a coat homeless. His dental work was on point. He seemed more youthful than not. I see some of these guys. I think that they uh, use this as a means to make money that they don't necessarily have to rely upon. Maybe I'm wrong. He just didn't strike me as the kind of guy. Like, if I gave him the coat, I could see him kind of looking askance at it and maybe rejecting it. Uh, Was it that he's not duly desperate? I think it's more this. I don't give to homeless people. I don't give to individual beggars. I give $5 a month to an anti-homeless, yes, anti-homeless charity in New York. I also give $5 a month to the International Medical Group. And I do this to allay my guilt, but also because I think giving to an organization who knows where the needs really need to go is much more efficient, a much better way to solve the problem. So I'm not giving my coat because I normally give to the homeless and feel bad for the homeless. I already dictated the reasons I'm giving my coat, mostly to feel better about myself, right? Remember that. And also because I couldn't give it in the more established ways because it would screw someone over with the feathers. Anyway, I saw this guy. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who really needs the coat. I don't engage with him. And in fact, this was the only homeless guy we saw. And I said to myself, well, maybe I'm not going to be able to give my coat away. I drop uh, my son off at his activities. I come back on a different subway line or at least use a different subway station. And there in that subway station are four guys and they're huddled together. They don't seem to be performatively homeless like this, like I assume this last guy to be. And one of them was wearing layers and layers and layers with a flannel shirt on the outside and a thermal shirt under it, but no coat that I could see. So I went up to him And I wanted to caveat. I wanted to tell him all about the downside. I said, I have this coat. Boom. He took it. I'm like, well, you should know that. He's like, I'll take it. Like, but the feathers, it's good. And he put it on and he seemed really happy. And the other homeless guys seemed really jealous. And you know what? I got that really selfish feeling of feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good for a couple of reasons. One, I gave him the coat. My child didn't get to see it. But in the interim, the people I told that I was doing this coat mission on did think me an idiot. So I also felt a little good that maybe I wasn't an idiot. So I get on my subway train and I'm coming back into Brooklyn. And someone comes through the subway train asking for money. And like I say, I, know, I don't normally give money. But she's a little bit different from the normal people who have this down pat 
asking for money. She talks about how really desperate she is, how she doesn't have a place to stay. She has a lot of bags. She looks really bedraggled. She doesn't have her speech memorized. She just seems to be making different arguments. She doesn't seem crazy, but she seems to be making different arguments to different people and being a little confrontational in a way I think the homeless people who do this effectively aren't. They want to say, God bless you and whatever you could spare. But she's like, please, you got to give me money. She even goes as far as to say, before I was homeless, I gave homeless people money. Why won't you? And I notice she's wearing a pretty thin coat. And for a second, I say to myself, well, if I only had this other coat to give, if I hadn't given it to the first guy, I could give it to this lady. And then another person on my train goes up to the woman and says, oh, there was someone who just came through here before and everyone gave him money. And the woman with the thin coat who seemed uh, homeless and desperate and not doing this as a, as a down pat performance said, how is that supposed to make me feel that this other guy got money? Do, does that supposed to make me feel better? That makes me feel worse, which is a really logical and incisive point to make. And in my experience, incisive points are not a good way to get people to donate money to you. That's not the correlation I find among humans. So she gets out of the subway and I was thinking about if I was cold-hearted, and I was thinking about should I give, should I violate my policy and give a dollar to this person? Because like I said, I don't think giving random subway beggars money helps the problem. And then I thought about that little parable, and I thought about help just one, if I could help just one. And then, and this is where maybe I'm weird, I had this other thought, which is that, you know what that is? That's a justification for charity. And you know what charity is? The charitable instinct. The charitable instinct is in some ways a justification for doing the right thing on the individual level, but absolving us from doing the right thing on the global level. Because if I took my dollar and instead of gave it to the person, if I gave my dollar or better yet, if I took the skill and luck and training and all of that that went into earning a dollar, however many minutes of my day it takes to mint that dollar, plus all the minutes of my past, the confluence of being born in good circumstances and having whatever skill I have and having whatever schooling I have. If I took all of that and directed it to not just giving one person a dollar, but trying to change society to the point where we don't have this problem, like a lot of countries do, I think we'd be much better off. So the middle layer is donating to accredited charitable organizations that know what the hell they're doing. But I think the highest calling is not just helping that one turtle. It's seeing the world, or at least our society, for what it is, and trying to help all the turtles or all the starfish, or all the homeless people. Not with a coat that makes you feel better, but with a strategy and a policy that works for everyone. And I had this thought, and I said to myself, that's not a story. That doesn't add up to a story. And then I had the next and last insight that I'm going to bore you with that will stick to you like small feathers from a coat which is I think our stories do us a disservice too. I think our parables of saving that one turtle make us feel good. And we analogize that to, I don't know, doing charitable work on an individual level in the face of, you know, overwhelming problems. How many of our overwhelming problems that seem like they can only be solved by charity actually can be solved by amassing and harnessing the power of, 
of the most powerful society ever to live on earth. So I think stories are part of the charitable impulse that distracts us from actually solving the problem. Or maybe that's just as self-serving as me wanting to give a specific code away to a specific person because it made me feel good. And that's why I call this whole thing whose conclusion, this story whose conclusion is don't believe in stories. That's why this is an anti-fable. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who has a dicky, but it's a really dysfunctional dicky. So it's like a regular dicky, has the collar, then it has the part that goes an eighth of a way down, but then it goes the other seven eighths of a way and the sleeves also. It does not work as a dicky. Daniel Schrader also helped with production of today's show. That guy has a highly functional dicky and also a standalone collar and eighth of a shirt type garment. Mary Wilson is the gist senior producer. She has the sleeved vest. It came out briefly in the 70s. No one could figure out what to do with it. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is monitoring all this wanton dicky talk, hoping it doesn't get out of control. The gist, tell you a little story quite quickly. It's about our great-grandfather. He had this sock. It was a little malfunctioning. Didn't know what to do with it. And then he had an idea. Well, maybe you know about my great-grandfather. Hiram P. Leg Warmer. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.